The scripture reading today comes from Revelation, chapter 1, 17 through 20. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, true confessions, you guys. I have become a super nerd over quarantine. Now you're probably thinking, Andrew, you were already that, and maybe you're right. But I I have read now all of the Lord of the Rings books, something I never thought I would do. I know it's a lot to take in. Maybe you need to say a quick prayer for me. Uh, That's fine. (laughs) The quarantine has forced us all to make very difficult choices. But I love these books now, seriously. I I, I think they're really, really good. Uh, And I... Uh, love that this series, if you noticed, is actually named after the, a line from the Lord of the Rings, Everything Sad Untrue, that actually comes from a, a line of the, of the book, The Fellowship of the Ring. You can look that up later. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep this nerd out theme going just a little bit today. In that same book, there's a character named Galadriel. She's an elf queen. I know, bear with me. And she gives Frodo, the hero of the story, a file uh, filled with like a liquid and it glows with light. And the scene in the movie, uh, it always slays me. Here's the line. She explains what the file is to Frodo and it's way too nerdy even for me to get into. But her last line with him is so powerful. She says, it will shine brighter when the night is about you. May May it be a light light to you in dark places. In dark places. When and all, all other, other lights, lights go, out. go out. We're in a series uh, on the book of Revelation. And it's the last book of the Bible. And one of the most important things that this book has always done for the Christian community is to inspire hope even in really, really dark times. That's what it did for the first century church uh, to which it was first written. It's what it does today. There's no shortage of darkness these days, I think. The darkness of injustice, abuse, contempt, for one another, idolatry, immorality, all kinds of evil. And perhaps more than ever, because of technology and access to global information, we can see in real time the darkness of the world at any given moment. We see it around us. We feel it within us. We sense it among us. I don't think anybody would disagree with this statement now that we are in a dark moment. But there's light. And this is a constant theme, actually, in all of Tolkien's work, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. But that's only because it's a theme all over the Bible. Yes, we are in a dark moment, but God always sends light into dark places. And it shines brightest when the night is about us. So if you have your Bible handy, turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're actually going to be kind of in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, we're going to look at those together this uh for this service. So while you're getting there, let me give you just a little context, okay? So a year ago, we did a whole series on just these 
first few chapters of Revelation. They record letters dictated by Jesus to John, who wrote Revelation, and they were sent to literal local churches, seven actual local churches in Asia Minor. The churches are in uh, major cities in modern-day Turkey. So you got Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And if you were around for that series a year ago, you remember that Jesus actually has a specific word of encouragement and or warning for every one of those local churches, but we can't get into all of that here. So if you want to go deeper into, into these two chapters, I invite you to go to our website, find our, our sermon series from last year. It's called Church for the End of the World. Now, what stands out to me now in this dark time is the image Jesus uses to describe these local churches. We read in chapter 1, uh, and we actually just read from that a few uh, moments ago, Jesus stands in the midst of the seven lampstands, and this is verse 20. Jesus says, the seven lampstands are the churches. This is the metaphor, the image Jesus gives for the local church. It's a lampstand. In other words, in the darkest moments of the ancient world, and think of the evil and oppression of the Roman Empire, Jesus says his church is light. And that light should shine brightest in the darkness. And this is our first point here in our sermon today. Jesus says, we are a lampstand in Kansas City. Right? That applies to us. In our community, we are called to shine in a dark world. Now, there's a reason Jesus gives this image of light for his people. Uh, this theme of light and darkness is all over the Bible. So think back with, uh, to the very beginning of the Bible with me, Genesis chapter 1. The very first couple of verses in the entire Bible, darkness was over the deep. God said, let there be light. And there was light. The first words from the mouth of God in the entire scriptures bring light to darkness. Then you think about the role of light in the worship of Israel moving forward. Uh, remember that there was always a lampstand. There's always a menorah in the tabernacle and in the temple uh, with seven lamps on it. Hint, hint. To recall the seven days of creation in Genesis 1, which all began with light. And of course, John is drawing on that image when he talks about the seven churches in Asia Minor. Fast forward to the New Testament, the Gospels, and you see that Jesus in the book of John, who's the same author as the book of Revelation, in the very first verses about Jesus, John says this about him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So when Jesus uh, teaches his followers what it means to be his disciple in Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Paul the Apostle, writing to the church in Philippi, tells them in chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. On and on that list could go. It's no accident that these seven churches are lampstands and that light is one of the primary pictures of what the church is called to be. And this metaphor gives us a couple of hints as to what the church is supposed to be and do in the world. And this will bear out in the letters, the specific letters that Jesus dictates for the rest of these chapters. When Jesus commands the church to shine in a dark world, at least two things will be true. 
First, Jesus is using this image because light exposes things around it for what they really are. So think about darkness for a moment. Think about those times at night when you first turn off the lights and your eyes haven't adjusted. And you look around the room and you can no longer see or sense what's around you. Or worse yet, imagine you're like the teenagers I heard about uh, recently who snuck into a series of caves in Lenexa late at night and were lost in the darkness and the silence for hours. They could not find their way out. Now, luckily, they're rescued and they're fine. But that's going to take a lot of therapy, right? I mean, yikes, that's scary. I don't care how old you are. We're all a little bit afraid of the dark. That's the nature of darkness. It's what it does. Things are murkier and they're scarier and they're more deceptive in the dark. Lots of lies and fears creep up into our minds in the dark. A desk looks like a monster. A lamp looks like a person hiding in the corner. Like being lost in a deep, dark cave, you, be you begin to believe there's no way out of this. We'll never find the light switch. When Jesus describes the world, this is what he says. He says people are fumbling through the dark. This is the human condition. Unable to save ourselves, to see anything for what it truly is, there's not enough light. And this is how we live all the time until Jesus shows up. And he begins to expose things for what they really are, what the world really is, who we really are, what sin and righteousness and grace and truth and beauty and goodness really are. And then he scatters his church all over the world as pinpoints of light in dark places. And so Jesus designed his church to be a light switch in their local community. We should be a light switch wherever we go. Truth tellers, yes, but beauty creators too. Models of justice and goodness, gracious, merciful, showing the world what those things really mean. Pushing back the darkness with light. So we're to expose reality for what it really is. That's what light does. We're called to shine like that. But what makes light in Jesus and God's people that that it exposes what's real is, is also at the same time what makes the church very attractive to some and very repulsive to others. So if you're ready to see the truth, then the light is a gift. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know that gift intimately. If you are not ready for the truth, the light is a threat. And much of the world and the human heart loves darkness. That's what John says in his gospel chapter 3. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. And this gets to our next point here. Because the challenge of the local church to be light, as we're called to be, is directly related to this problem. The brighter the people of God shine, the more attractive and repulsive they become at the same time. And that can lead to persecution on the one hand, and we're going to get to that in a minute, or compromise on the other. So let's talk, I want to talk about compromise for a minute because what you see in these letters in Revelation is that our light grows dim when we compromise. It grows dim. So this is one of Jesus' main concerns with his churches in Revelation. And right off the bat, the first letter to the church in Ephesus, as they struggle to be light, as they are called to be, Jesus warns them in chapter 2, verse 5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's like Jesus is warning this church, hey, your light can grow dim or it can go out completely 
if you compromise with the darkness around you. And this can happen for at least two reasons, which are both highlighted in these letters of Revelation. There's probably more ways to describe this, but here's how I think about it. The first is where the light of the church is threatening to the world, Christians can be tempted to give up. So if you look at the letter to Pergamum in chapter 2, Jesus warns them, for example, that some of their church members are, are eating food sacrificed to idols. Now remember, in the ancient world, idolatry, politics, economic life, these are all explicitly intertwined in the ancient world. So that even like a guild meeting, like your local carpenters union meeting, they would start a business meeting with a sacrifice and perhaps a prayer to a patron god or goddess. That was very normal. And you would eat the meal as a form of worship and dedication to receive blessing from that patron god or goddess. And as a Christian now in that meeting, being light there meant abstaining, meant saying no thank you, because you know there is one true God and it's your job to demonstrate that fact. That's the reality. That's the light. But that statement was incredibly threatening to the Roman world as it continues to be in much of the world today. Imagine, right, the, what people would say to that Christian in that meeting. Don't you care about blessing our community? Don't you care about business? Don't you care about our country? Don't, aren't you going to be patriotic and, and do your part to make sure Rome is safe and there's jobs for us? I mean, imagine everything wrapped up in that moment of idolatry as a Christian. How do you respond? It's, it's easy to compromise. To so say, fine, I'll eat it, just to avoid the difficulty of that moment. This is still true for the church. We are tempted to compromise on our difficult beliefs because the cost is high. So the Bible's teaching on human sexuality, for example, is offensive to our culture today. The Bible's teaching on sin uh, and evil in general can be offensive to our culture today. And it's tempting for churches to compromise, to avoid that pain, to look more like the darkness. When light is threatening, it's easy to want to give up, to become less threatening. But just as dangerous as that, and perhaps even more so for us, when the darkness is tempting, it's easy to give in. So again, this letter to Pergamum, there are Christians eating food sacrificed to idols to avoid pain. But there are also Christians being led into sexual immorality by false teachers. Okay, this is all in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 2. So even Bible-believing Christians here were tempted to get cozy with the darkness when it came to their sexual ethics, right? It's not so much they're trying to avoid something, they're saying, I kind of like this over here. I think this is especially tempting for Western Christians, yes, around sexuality, but more than that too, because, because we, unlike first century Christians, are generally in a place of cultural influence and power. I know sometimes it doesn't seem that way, but compared to our counterpart in Sardis or Thyatira, we have incredible comfort and freedom afforded to us as Christians by our culture. And that's a good thing. That's, that's good. But it does put our light in a very precarious situation. Because we are tempted to ignore the darkness around us and to compromise with it. I think it's easy to forget that the same society, for example, that gives us freedom of worship and freedom of speech, food security, economic independence, which are all really, really good gifts, that same culture is also full of darkness. 
Both are true at the same time. The darkness of racial inequality, the darkness of oppression and silencing the most vulnerable, the darkness of abortion and the systemic elimination of the unborn, the darkness of exploitation of women and children, human trafficking right here in our own city. These things happen. When we can't be light in those dark places because we don't want to make waves or because our lives are pretty comfortable or we're so sheltered from that darkness that we're not able to be light, our impact dims in our community. When the church compromises in our call to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God, our light grows dim. This is why Jesus speaks so forcefully here to be light in dark places. And here's our last point. Our light shines brightest in self-sacrifice. And this is hard to hear, I think, in, in some ways. But when you read these letters, and frankly, when you read the entire book of Revelation as a whole, it becomes really, really clear. Jesus never calls persecution a threat to the church. Never. He says that idolatry is a threat. He says that compromise is a threat. He says that a lack of love, neighborly love, is a threat. He's never concerned that persecution will stop his church. If you don't believe me, look at his command in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. As hard as that had, had to have been for this church to hear, Jesus is clear that our light shines brightest when we are willing to give up our preferences, our comforts, and even our lives for Him and for others. Now, for some around the world today, this is literally a call to death, or at least very serious oppression and persecution. We partner with Elam, for example, who plant churches and support pastors in Iran. That church, by the way, is exploding right now, even in the midst of COVID, because the people there see the hope within the church and the church's willingness to suffer for Christ. And I know for many of us, right, online services are not our favorite, but God is using the internet to reach people in Iran, in the Iran region, that never would have heard the gospel without this moment. Their light is shining brightly. So what would it look like if Christ's community had that kind of reputation? What if we were known for being people who didn't need to get our way, who could willingly put aside our preferences and our comforts to serve those around us and to deepen our community within us, which is desperate for light. This is a tall task, you guys. It is. But this, it's, not, it's not one the church hasn't risen to in the past. Rodney Stark, who's a church historian, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he talks about the third century, so roughly... 150, 200 years or so after Revelation was written. Uh, he talks about the Christian community in Rome then, and a terrible plague broke out in the Roman Empire. And Decius, who was the emperor at the time, he blamed Christians for it. He gave them a bad name. He said, they brought it here. They're trying to destroy the empire. They've never liked us. But Stark points out that uh, even with that kind of bad press from the top dog, the light of the church overcame two inconvenient facts. For the emperor. <laughs> the first inconvenient fact was that a lot of Christians died from the plague too. So if this was some kind of conspiracy, they did a really, really bad job. And second, and more importantly, when everyone else in Rome who had the means to flee did to avoid death, 
the Christians stayed and cared for the sick, including their own pagan neighbors. Their light, as controversial as it was in the ancient world, was also unassailable. Even the most cynical third century pagan could not look at the Christian church in Rome and say, what a bunch of hypocrites. Couldn't say that. When the church is willing to sacrifice herself, as Jesus did, that is when our light shines brightest. So ask yourself, where in our lives today are we living in a way that makes absolutely no sense unless Jesus is alive? That's what changed the Roman Empire. What Jesus is asking these churches to do, to die for him, only makes sense if his resurrection is real. What in our lives can we point to? Can your neighbor point to and say, why in the world would you do that? Nobody does that. Can they point to your finances, even in these uncertain times, and say, why are you giving so much away? Can they point to your time and say, why are you giving so much of that away? Can they point to your social media and say, wow, you, you seem to love like really different kinds of people without taking them off all the time. How do you do that? Can they point to your marriage or your parenting or your singleness and say, you don't do that like other people do? Why? Can they point to anything that shines like light in a dark world that demands an explanation in your life? Church, I don't say this to freak us, to freak us out, seriously, but we're in a dark time. These are blackout conditions. It's kind of dark out there. But this is our opportunity because even the smallest amount of light will shine brighter, perhaps, than it has in a long time. So here's our call to action. What's one thing you can start in this season of life that will turn up the wattage of your light, even just a little bit? You know, let me get your imagination going. We're starting homeroom, or we've started homeroom, right now to serve our students, our middle and high school students, who are meeting predominantly online, at least at the time of this recording. Could you serve? We need people to come and to pray and to tutor and to, to open our cafe, to get to know other faces and people in our church and to love them. Can you serve? We have ministry partners. Could you sign up maybe for Care Portal to meet specific needs within our community? Can you serve the Hope Center in their after-school program? Or maybe even take up a neighborhood food drive and deliver it to the Hope Center so they can distribute food to those most vulnerable. Right, those are just a couple ideas. Think and pray about that this week. How can we serve in such a way that the darkness trembles? Because now is our moment. May we be known for this. When the night is about us, then we shine brightest.